sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Well, Bruce Orr is creating a link for us between people who, as earlier was said, had animus, who were, in fact, desperate to stop candidate Trump from being President Trump, both before and after he became the president-elect. Since day one, this administration has taken attack after attack on women. It is completely false that uh, some of these other federally funded types of health centers can absorb the amount of patients that come to Planned Parenthood for specifically for the services that we provide, which are the well woman exams, the cancer screenings, the contraceptive screening. And now, Stacey Washington. Oh my goodness. So I'm still feeling the energy. Um, I was thinking maybe my show is getting to be a big deal when people want to be on instead of getting booked in. They just say they're booked in and call in and get on the show. <laughs> um, I don't blame my producers for that. That's like something I actually had that happen to me one other time on my weekend show um, where someone wanted to be on. They couldn't get booked on. So they called in and, you know, got onto the show as a caller. So no big whoop there. Um, I, I, as you heard during the One News Now segment, we also have Fox News at the top of the hour. Um, there is there are some questions about Martha McSally in Arizona with her immigration record. I think the point that's being made here is that she'll have to come into alignment with President Trump on that issue. Uh, at least that's what we would hope would be the result of of you know her trying to go for this. Um, as for her opponent, and I'm open to interviewing Martha McSally, who is the nominee for the Republican side, and her opponent. I'd love to talk to her opponent uh, for the, the Democratic side about the position uh, on immigration, open borders, abolishing ICE, et cetera. I'd love to talk about that. So I'm open to both of those. So if anyone from those campaigns is listening, you're welcome to come onto this show. We'll give you both the same amount of time and we will talk to you about it because I love hearing both perspectives. And I, I think voters deserve to hear from both sides. So uh, great to, to be back with you. I want to take just a moment to point out that something has occurred across the nation. And this is important to us, all of us, as Americans, as men and women, as parents, as singles, as grandparents, as brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, you name it, those of us who are human and have to consume liquids in order to survive, we all are impacted by this decision. It's number two. Clip two. Ignore the sweltering August heat and channel your inner autumn because pumpkin spice lattes are back at Starbucks. Yes, you can feel like fall with pumpkin spice sauce, espresso shots, and your choice of milk. Celebrate the pumpkin spice latte's 15th birthday today with a little whipped cream while you're at it. Who cares that once you step outside, you'll be sweating harder than a sauna? Get that PSL ASAP because nothing says the seasons are changing quite like coffee. Not to be outdone this morning, Dunkin' Donuts is countering Starbucks foray into fall with their own new lineup. Dunkin' rolled out pumpkin and maple pecan flavored coffees on Monday because why not? The flavors will be available as hot or iced coffee and espresso. They also debuted a new maple cream cheese spread, crisp donut, Belgian waffle breakfast sandwich, and pumpkin muffins. Muffin. Um, so this is important. 
Dunkin' Donuts is not just rolling out anything pumpkin flavored. They rolled out the maple flavors as well. And so if you're hashtag PSL pumpkin spice latte, go for it. It's not only available at gun-free Starbucks, but it's available at Dunkin' Donuts as well. And um, I didn't see it on the board at the Caldies, but I wasn't at the full-blown Caldies. I was at the like half stop, which I was describing during hour one. So I... I'm looking forward to it. I, I was at the grocery store this morning. As I was walking by, I saw the end caps had not only banana flavored mix to make pumpkins with, but also the pumpkin flavored mix. So it's time. It's, we're not going to have to wait until it gets cold. We're not going to have to wait until it's like a month before Thanksgiving. They're giving it to us early. If you're into pumpkin spice, it's back. That's the breaking news. <laughs> so now I want to pivot over to um, someone who calls himself pro-life. It's Joe Manchin. He's up for re-election. He's got his seat up. You know, he's 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 concerned, and he's talking about being this pro-life warrior, which to me is kind of surprising. It's like, wow, pro-life Democrat. I'd love to hear more. Well, he's on a radio interview here, and he gets asked about his pro-life credentials, and here's his response: it's number six. U.S. Senator Joe Manchin's with us. Let me turn. Um, let me turn the page here on something else, Senator, and that sure. is that you. Uh, consistently argue and say that you are pro-life. Now, last week, you voted against an amendment that was offered by Rand Paul from Kentucky that uh, on an appropriations bill that would stop taxpayer funding of Planned Parenthood. Now, how can you continue to argue that you are pro-life when you voted against that amendment that would have stopped funding for Planned Parenthood, which performs abortions. I know, I know. Now let me go clarify. I, I know. I know that the money. I know that the money does not go specifically for abortions, but it does uh, go to support Planned Parenthood, which is the largest abortion provider in the country. Poppy, that's not going to change anything. First of all, there's not a penny of public dollars that go to support abortions from Planned Parenthood. I've checked it inside and out with the Hyde Amendment. It can't happen. It's against the law. Now we have one clinic in the state of West Virginia, Indiana that provides health care, preventive health care for women and mostly young females. I can't look at them, Hoppy, and say, I'm sorry, Rick, because of me being hurt politically, I can't vote for that you'll have funding for your for the clinic. I just can't do it. But I am pro-life, and I think everyone knows. Look at my record. I served, I, I voted with Lindsey Graham on the 21 ban on abortions. I voted for everything except I could not take funding away when I knew the funding was not used for abortions. I don't know how else to say it. So... He sounds so sincere, and I really wish he was. Let's just get that out first. I wish he was, because to have someone who was a truly pro-life Democrat, that would be outstanding, but it's not the case. So I'm going to play some audio for you, and this, this, this was earlier today that I learned about this second funding mechanism. So I, I consider myself to be very knowledgeable about the issue of abortion and how it's funded in America. But I didn't know how much of federal dollars go into Planned Parenthood under the S-CHIP program. Now, we have a caller, and, and, and I really enjoy our callers and getting to talk to them. So we're going to go to him, and then, then I'm going to have this. We're, we're all going to have this wake-up call together. And, and we have to have it because it's the only way we can get to a place where Americans on the whole, larger than a plurality, decide that the enough is enough. It's time to stop funding Planned Parenthood. So let's go to Jonathan from Kentucky. Hey, Jonathan, thanks for calling in to American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Thank you, Stacey. I, I, 
I agree that that uh, abortion issue is a very important issue. I, I'm sorry. I was wanting to talk with Ann Coulter when she was still on the air because oh. something is really brewing up in CNN. Jim Shudo has been caught in a bold-faced lie, the ultimate fake news, and President Trump has even latched onto it today in Twitter as a scandal, which it sounds like it's just going to keep getting worse and worse until Jim Shudo gets fired. Did you hear about what he did? Yeah, so there's this story. Um, first of all, it's Lanny Davis that provided the the kind of the bombshell that kind of blew all of the CNN reporting out of the way. Am I right? This is Lanny Davis is that Clinton world guy who's the attorney for Michael Cohen. And he said that uh, the, the Jim Scudo scoop from last week was false and phony. Um, (laughs) It's pretty, it's pretty crazy because Scudo is CNN's chief national security uh, advisor over there. So he's got a really big title and it turns out he's put out some information that's utterly false. That's right. Jim Shudo took Lanny Davis's quote off the record, used Lanny Davis's quote off the record to make it sound like Cohen is going to spill the beans on Trump. However, when Lanny Davis changed his tune and said, I honestly don't know the, the truth about that, Jim Shudo said that he had asked, Lanny Davis, and Lanny Davis would not make a comment. But we know that Lanny Davis was the source. So Lanny Davis did make a comment, and Jim Shudo is lying, and the entire organization now is being implicated. Brian Seltzer, the ombudsman there at CNN, is saying we are not going to back away from the story. We had other sources, but there really are no other sources than the lawyer for Cohen. And this is going to, I think this is going to get worse and worse until Lanny, uh, until uh, Jim Shudo gets himself canned. So I want to give a couple more bits of information. And thank you for bringing this up, Jonathan. I, this, what's so interesting about it is I remember seeing the tweets from Brian Stelter a couple days ago where he said CNN stands by its reporting. But the reporting is all from an off the record comment from Cohen. It, so, in other words, if the off-the-record source itself retracts the statement that they made, then the entire series of reports that started with, with this guy, Jim Scudo and, and Carl Bernstein, all of it falls apart because all of it's based off of this one conversation. They, they've got the July 27 CNN story reporting that Cohen said he personally witnessed Donald Trump being told about the 2016 meeting that took place at the height of the presidential campaign. Then that would contradict President Trump, right? Because President Trump said he didn't know anything about the meeting. And why would he? It was about a- adoption services. So they said, we, ha- we might have some dirt on Hillary Clinton. We also want to talk to you about adoption in America for Russian kids. So why would President Trump know about that as the campaign, you know, he was, he was the candidate? Now, on Sunday, after one of the primary sources, which was Lanny Davis, publicly cast doubt on the information he provided, Scudo and Bernstein reiterated that they stand by their reporting. And as you said, it spread out amongst you know, a lot of the other talking heads over at CNN who have a lot of their credibility on the line now because once they were informed that they had a problem, instead of them investigating it and making a retraction or a correction, they stood by the reporting after they found out that it might be false. So you're right. Somebody might get fired. 
every other network that took CNN's story, boy, they owned it. NBC said, we now know the truth. And uh, ABC interrupted their programming, their regular programming, to tell what they, what they had learned through CNN. Now, all of these organizations include the Washington Post, the New York Post. They have all retracted their story because they know Lanny Davis made that up. But CNN refuses. And that's why I think CNN is really ratcheting this up, and they're really going to get themselves in trouble now. <laughs> well... Um, they, they had an out. All they had to do was say, well, now he's retracted it. And that was the basis of our coverage. But they're not going to do that because they're much more married to trying to harm the president than they are to the truth. And that's kind of sad because I grew up watching CNN and, and watching where they've gone since their glory days of breaking news on the battlefield. Uh, you know, their reporters literally running alongside our troops in foreign countries to this. It's like, it's not even the same news organization. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for calling the show and for sharing that with us. Um, so I'm I'm wanting to do this reimbursement audio, and I think we have a minute left, so I'm going to hold off and do that when we get back. Um, and just a little bit more on this story that Jonathan called in about. And this is actually – I. so if we had two segments with Ann Coulter, we would have definitely taken calls. But she is so busy promoting the book right now that it was – actually like a feat of magic to get to have her last week and then this week on the particular topic. And I know she took time to come in today and be on the show to discuss that. So it's in two of her books, actually. I've not read Mugged, so I haven't read every book that she's written, but I have read a few. And I heard uh, on, on her audio book, Adios America, about the shared history of Black America. And it's not that we don't know this. This is what's so interesting about that is that we all Americans know that through through slavery, white Americans and black Americans have a shared history in this country. It doesn't mean that other Americans don't have a shared history. It just I'm just talking about those particular two groups. And I think it's because of that shared history and the and the amazing strides we've been able to make that that's why the enemy comes against us and tries to separate us on that. That is why there's such a point of contention that. The Democrats, the leftists in this country, the organized left, because not all Democrats believe this, want to separate black and white Americans on race because that is the one place where we actually have so much of a bond. So if we're not fighting about race, we actually could make huge strides as we've done in the past and we will do so again in the future. But that's not something that is politically expedient for some people in this country and that's why it's fought. So when we get back, we're going to get back into the information I was starting off on this segment. Just stay right there. When our health insurance renewal notice arrived last fall, my wife and I made the decision to drop our plan. With the monthly premiums and deductible, we'd have to pay $30,000 just to use it. So we did our homework and switched to MediShare. The cost savings are incredible, over $500 a month, and we don't have to pay for services we don't need or don't agree with. Then, out of the blue, she had to have emergency surgery. Scary stuff. $150,000 in hospital bills, and MediShare members took care of everything. All we paid was our small portion. I'm a doctor who's been in healthcare for 20 years, and this is one of the most impressive programs I've ever seen. Thank God she's fully recovered. And now we're telling everyone about MediShare. Call 855-PSALM-23 to find out how much you can save on your health care. MediShare, 
Call 855-PSALM-23. That's 855-PSALM-23. This is Viewpoints with Kirby Anderson. Many people in our world accept certain lies uncritically. That is the argument in one of the chapters in the book, Deceivers. Dr. Gary Frazier was on the Point of View radio program recently to talk about his chapter dealing with Laodicean lies. The church in Laodicea is mentioned in the third chapter of the book of Revelation. It was a church that was lukewarm, either hot nor cold. In many ways, this describes our 21st century world. The first Laodicean lie is the belief that you don't need God. The message of Laodicea was that God was irrelevant. He explains that it is the deception to think that the church can possibly operate in the flesh as opposed to the Spirit of God. The second Laodicean lie is the promotion of unconditional love and acceptance. Certainly we should love sinners, but we compromise the Bible and the gospel message when we promote tolerance at every sin and perverted lifestyle. He says that a large number of people who claim to be Christian have fallen prey to the idea that love equates with acceptance of anything and everything. The third Laodicean lie is political correctness. He quotes a syllogism by Dr. Al Mohler about how truth died. When that which was once celebrated is condemned, when that which was once condemned is now celebrated, and when those who refuse to celebrate are condemned. Truth is condemned, lies are celebrated, and those who refuse are condemned. Gary Fraser says that he does not care about being politically correct. Instead, he cares about truth. In a time when the values of our culture are inverted from biblical principles, we need to come back to Paul's teaching in the book of Romans. He wrote, let God be true and every human being a liar. I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my point of view. Take Kirby and the Point of View team with you on the go with the Point of View app. Search for Point of View Radio at the Apple or Google Play stores. This is Stacy on the Right with Stacy Washington on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. It's my pleasure to welcome our next guest to the program. It's Thomas Shipping, the Heritage Foundation Deputy Director of the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies and a Senior Legal Fellow. Thomas, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to talk to you. I love speaking to my heritage experts, and um, I, I just have so much respect for the the amazing amount of work that is done out of the Heritage Foundation. And so it is. I'm really excited about hearing your analysis on next week's uh, upcoming judicial. Well, it's going to be the the like circus, really. But it's going to be a judicial confirmation process for a Supreme Court nominee. This time, it's Justice Kavanaugh. How do you think it's going to go? Well, the hearing uh, before the Judiciary Committee will start uh, Tuesday morning, and it will last four days. Tuesday will be opening statements by the senators on the committee. There's 21 members of the committee, 11 Republicans, 10 Democrats. And then Wednesday and Thursday, that would be September 5 and 6, Judge Kavanaugh will be before the committee answering questions from the senators uh, those are going to be long days, but I hope people tune in uh, and and listen to as much of it as they can, because this is, this will be the first opportunity, really the only opportunity, that people will have to hear from the nominee, from Brett Kavanaugh, about issues that are so important to the way the judicial branch uh, functions. And then next week, Friday the 7th, will be 
uh, outside groups, uh, witnesses for and against the nomination, they'll be testifying. Um, I, I think Judge Kavanaugh will will do a great job. He's he's somebody who has followed these uh, the confirmation process and kind of how it's developed over the years. Uh, people are at the Justice Department and the White House are uh, better than they used to be about preparing a nominee for the kinds of questions that he might get. I know he'll practice a lot uh, as to how to approach uh, especially very hostile questions from Democrats. Um, but I think people should also remember that the hearing, even though it'll be on television, a lot of attention will be paid, it's only four days out of about a three-month process. It's only one piece of the overall process. There's a lot more to it when you're evaluating somebody like a Supreme Court nominee. But the hearing uh, is important, and I hope people do have an opportunity, at least uh, for part of the week, to tune in. So I plan to be glued to it. I mean, seriously, like I, I'm going to be watching as much of it as I humanly can. I'm going to have, obviously, things I have to do. But the, the beauty of it is you should be able to listen to the audio of all the hearings on C-SPAN through an app on your phone or have it on in a window on your laptop through C-SPAN. Um, and if you're actually near a television, you can watch because I'm sure there'll be some of the networks that cover it live uh, from the hearing. So I know that uh, Heritage Foundation President K. Cole James has issued a statement of support. I, I'm, I feel like he's going to come through it very well, that he's very prepared for this type of an ordeal, even though it's going to be lengthy and he'll probably come out of it needing a vacation, that he'll do <laughs> well in it. What do you think the roadmap looks like in the Senate? For the actual confirmation, are the votes there to get it done? Well, remember that the the conflict over judicial appointments, especially when it comes to the Supreme Court, is a conflict between two different ways of looking at the judicial branch of government. One side looks at judges, and, and they believe that judges are supposed to be impartial, that judges are supposed to take the law like the Constitution or statutes, as they find it, as it's written, and they're, they're not supposed to rely on their own personal views or politics. And the other side believes in a very political judiciary, that, that judges are supposed to guarantee that certain, uh, certain sides win, that certain political interests are furthered, and that's what makes them kind of manipulate the Constitution or statutes to, to make cases come out the way they want. It's a huge battle. It is a critically important issue. And when people listen to the hearing, they ought to listen to the kinds of statements that are made, the kind of questions that are asked, how Judge Kavanaugh responds, and ask yourself, which side are the senators on? Which side is Judge Kavanaugh on in that debate? Which, which kind of judiciary um, do they think we ought to have? And I think there's a majority of senators, certainly all Republicans, and I think at least a few Democrats, who believe that we ought to have a fair and impartial judiciary, not a political one. I think most Democrats believe in a very political judiciary, and that's why they'll vote against Judge Kavanaugh, but I think he will be confirmed with at least a few Democratic votes. So let me play uh, kind of devil's advocate. I was reading an article uh, right after the announcement of Kavanaugh, and, and I had to have a two-part question. The first part is pretty simple. Um, a lot of Democrats are very upset by the fact that the Heritage Foundation 
um, and the Federalist Society are the primary kind of fact checkers, if you will, on whether or not a candidate should be on President Trump's list of approved nominees. And this is a list that was created before he was actually the president. And it was one of the reasons why a lot of people turned out to vote for him was that they knew beforehand uh, there. These are the 25 people who are on the list of possible nominees. And so it gave them some some clarity on where the president stood. How how do you answer that when people say, well, the Heritage Foundation is really it's you know it's skewed. It's it's only interested in putting people on who have right leaning views, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I've been I've been in, this is the eleventh Supreme Court nomination that I've been involved in. I've been working full time in the field of judicial appointments for over thirty years, and I can tell you, every administration, Republican or Democrat relies on their allies, either political allies in the Senate, ideological allies among outside groups. Every administration relies on their allies for input, for suggestions, for recommendations, whether it's of individual people, whether it's of um, some other kind of of information. There's no no administration does this all by themselves. And so, of, of course, the Trump administration and, and the Trump campaign looked to organizations like the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation because we're, we think about the judiciary the same way. We have a lot of expertise in looking at uh, judiciary, the, the, the judicial branch, in the appointment of judges. We know a lot of good lawyers and, and sitting judges around the country that fit the criteria that the Trump administration believes. And so, of course, we're working with them. Every single administration. You cannot tell me that Barack Obama didn't reach out to uh, the National Women's Law Center or the Planned Parenthood Legal Defense Fund or any number of left-wing organizations, the ACLU, the American Constitution Society. You can't tell me that that the Obama administration didn't reach out to them for the same kind of specific advice and input and recommendations that the Trump administration has. They would be foolish not to. So, so I, I, yes, I think we that's had a an role excellent and we're answer. We're proud of it. We believe in these principles, and we're going to help the administration implement them. I'm I'm happy that you were one of the sources because when I was thinking about President Trump uh, before he was the nominee, I thought there was a lot of talk of him nominating his sister, who is actually a judge, which I didn't know until the, the until the stories came out. President Trump's sister is a judge, and he would probably put her on the Supreme Court. And I thought. Oh, my goodness, she's she's probably a New York liberal. This is a terrible idea. Then when he was the nominee, one of the first things he did was say that he would only use people who were vetted and approved by the Heritage Foundation, which uh, that was my first check mark. And then he said the Federalist Society. And I was like, well, I'm good to go. I, I feel very, very confident well, and, with those and, two organizations. And I got to say, from, from the perspective of, like, like you had said, clarity about where the, the president's coming from, no presidential candidate had ever used an actual list of names. They might have talked generally about criteria or some sort of vague, you know, mumbo-jumbo, but, they, but he actually gave you specific names. There's no better way to demonstrate this is the kind of judiciary that I think America ought to have. Had he not done that, had he not been specific, then he would have been criticized for that. So it, it was a much better way to go to be clear and specific. Take it or leave it. You don't like these people, vote against them. But if you do, this is where the judiciary ought to go. Uh, And frankly, I'm glad that's the direction we're going. 
Me too. I, I think it's very comforting, especially so, you know, so many of us in America with, you know, no legal background. It's like you have you you know, you want someone who wants to adhere to the Constitution. You don't want to have to go through and figure out what types of constitutional adherence there are and all of that. It's much nicer to be able to leave it to experts like yourself. So my next question has to do with um, it's it's a little it's still on topic, but kind of off as far as Kavanaugh. So we've seen a number of judges across the country on the appellate courts, Ninth Circuit, et cetera, attempt to use their positions on those courts to constrain the president on issues that have been remanded to him by Congress, namely immigration. So on one of the rulings, most recently from the Supreme Court, Justice Clarence Thomas said that this was a troubling trend that might have to be addressed by the Supreme Court if it continued because it is an improper use of the judiciary. Do you think there's a case in the pipeline right now that would bring that issue back before the Supreme Court? Well, it's it's not so much a, a specific issue as it is, uh, the quote that you just referred to, as it is a trend in cases generally. Um, what we're talking about here is sometimes called judicial activism. That is, judges who are asserting themselves more politically than legally, uh, and they're tackling issues instead of deciding cases. Judges are supposed to decide concrete cases. They're supposed to apply the law impartially. They're not supposed to follow their own preferences in politics. And frankly, the way to and judicial activism is to appoint the right kind of judges, which is, you know, which brings us back to how important it is that uh, President Trump is doing that. Um, the, the Supreme Court reverses the Ninth Circuit more often than any other circuit in the country because there's more active, activist judges on the Ninth Circuit than anywhere else. And Justice Thomas put his finger exactly on the problem, and that is judges who are stepping beyond what their authority is, beyond what their role is. The judiciary has a specific role that was designed for them by America's founders. They don't have any authority to step out of that. That's why the debate over judges is a conflict over these two very different ways of looking at the judiciary. Yeah, I, I'm. so what about the Michelle Malkin wrote a column a couple years ago asking that, the next president, who's a Republican, look at breaking up the Ninth Circuit because it's too big. And mm-hmm. if they broke it up, then they would actually be able to hear more cases and their caseload, caseload would be much more manageable. And it would also break up this tendency that they have to do what you've described, which is go outside of their mandate to just hear cases and decide on individual cases. Do you yeah, think I the mean, president there, will there, do there, that? There is that argument. Um, I personally don't look at it that way uh, because any any plan for breaking up the Ninth Circuit would, in effect, isolate California. It would, it would take the, the Ninth Circuit includes about the, the, the western third of the country. It's got a lot of normal states in it, but it's also got California. Splitting it would essentially isolate California even more, which would concentrate the liberal activist judges and make that circuit that would still include California even more out of step with every other circuit in the country. 
Mm. So it could have the opposite effect of creating even more conflicts that the Supreme Court would have to try to sort out. So there's different ways of looking at that. There's arguments for and against. I, I don't see that happening. Congress would have to do that, and I don't see that happening in the near future. But I think everybody agrees that uh, the, the kind of judges that have been appointed in California especially uh, aren't good for the country uh, no matter where they live because our, our system of government it was supposed to work by design. And, and you step outside of that design, you change the ingredients in a recipe, and it's going to come out some way that you don't want. And so the kind of judges that we appoint across the country, not only to the Supreme Court, is very, very important. Wow. Thank you so much. Well, I, I appreciate your time today. Thomas Shipping, the Heritage Foundation Deputy Director of the Edmund Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies, Senior Legal Fellow. Thank you, sir, for your time today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Talk to you again soon. Uh, I, I so appreciate him answering those questions. Those are like the ones that they're always kind of, you know, flittering around in your mind. You're like, whoa, you know, <laughs> um, Wow. I I would really love to know because when I read Michelle Malkin's article about that, I thought, hmm, wow, that's an interesting concept, breaking them up. But he's right. It would possibly end up with California being by itself. And I, I feel so much for the California listeners. I know we have stations in California and also listeners there. And it's just it's such a tough situation that they find themselves in because they they literally There's just tons of conservatives living in California, but because they don't live in the population centers, the population centers are heavily occupied by illegal immigrants and people who support that type of stuff. And they vote in the most liberal uh, people. And, you know, it's just crazy. So, um, yeah, we've we've got that going on. We have about a minute left. Um, I'm going to take some calls and we're also going to wind our way through. I'm going to give you all of the facts when we get back from the break. We're going to be coming in with the three percent lie. So. This is what you hear all the time. And we have three things we're going to debunk. We're going to debunk the lie that 97% of what Planned Parenthood does is not abortion. We're going to debunk that they really need their $558 million a year from the taxpayers. We're going to talk about the $1.2 billion in federal reimbursement, some of it through the S-CHIP program that they get that most Americans don't even know about that they distort what they do in order to justify all of this. And after that segment, it'll be the end of the show, but you will be fully equipped to have this conversation with friends and loved ones, not a fight, not an argument, but an educational process that you can go through to help them understand why you're against taxpayer funding of Planned Parenthood. So we'll do that when we get back. And it'll be a podcast item you can share at AFR.net and also at urbanfamilytalk.com. And so hold on. We'll be right back. This is Just a Minute with Stacey Washington. Well, the Freedom From Religion Foundation is at it again. This time, the anti-liberty group is targeting a cafe offering a 10% discount to any patrons that show a church bulletin. Starters Cafe in Chevio, Ohio is a growing brunch spot, which the owner, Justin Watson, wants to capitalize on. Since the cafe's busiest day is Sunday, offering a church flyer discount has been very popular and is similar to restaurants offering savings to veterans, moms on Mother's Day, dads on Father's Day, senior citizens, and pretty much anyone celebrating a birthday. 
The Freedom From Religion Foundation likens this marketing genius to whites-only policies calling it racist. Of course, the go-to for anyone wanting to infringe on the rights of others is to cry racism. Fortunately, Mr. Watson is standing his ground. Perhaps someone will start a foundation to advocate for our freedom from baseless attacks from the Freedom From Religion Foundation. I'm Stacey Washington. Find out more at StaceyOnTheRight.com. Here's what you missed on airing the Addisons. I asked them, I, I pack all their stuff, and then I asked them to pack their own individual bags. If yeah. you have anything dear to you that you want to bring, that's your responsibility. You, I'm not doing you. that. You've got to do that. It teaches responsibility. You should do that. And and so I said, I said, JD, get your backpack. And he said, what should I put in my backpack? I said, put in your backpack what is significant to you, buddy. This is what you want to bring. Anything that you're going to leave and you're going to think, oh, I want that, you bring it. Can I tell you? So I was hanging up his backpack last night at the hotel. Can I tell you what was in his backpack? What was in his backpack? His Bible and the Nerf gun. <laughs> <laughs> hey, they, they cling to their Bibles and their guns. Ah! You got it hey, at an early age. <laughs> That's so good, Will. That is hilarious. You don't know how funny that was. <laughs> Buddy, you don't know how funny. Airing the Addisons, 6 to 9 Central on Urban Family Talk. And so I'm hoping that he doesn't use the gun. While holding the Bible. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> hey, anyway. Why not? Nehemiah. We hear anybody? I'm Chad Pergram with the Speaker's Lobby. Republican Arizona Senator John McCain was a giant. He'll be just the 30th person to ever lie in state in the Capitol Rotunda. McCain served four years in the House before his election to the Senate in 1986. In fact, McCain's fellow freshman elected him as class president, but McCain had some big shoes to fill in the Senate. He won the seat vacated by legendary Republican Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater. In fact, only Goldwater and McCain have occupied that Senate seat since Goldwater took office in January 1953. There are significant parallels between Goldwater and McCain. Both captured the Republican nomination for president and then lost. Some question the eligibility of both to serve as president. Goldwater was born in what is now Arizona before the region became a state in 1912. McCain was born in what was the U.S. Panama Canal Zone. And both were chairs of the Senate Armed Services Committee. Arizona law requires Governor Doug Ducey appoint a Republican to succeed McCain. There will be a special election to fulfill the final two years of McCain's term in 2020. With the Speaker's Lobby, Chad Pergram, Fox News. You can watch a live stream of the show on Facebook or YouTube at Stacy on the Right. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. America's largest abortion chain, Planned Parenthood, claims over and over and over again that abortion is only 3% of the services that they offer. That's your self-reported abortion statistic. 3% of all the procedures we provide. It's in their annual report. It's on their website. And their supporters say it all the time. And abortions only comprise 3% of Planned Parenthood's health services. Abortion services only account for about 3%. Because only 3% of what Planned Parenthood does is abortions. 3% of patients visit Planned Parenthood for a safe and legal abortion. Here's why that statistic is completely bogus, and why the senior editor of the online magazine Slate said that the 3% stat was the, quote, most meaningless abortion statistic ever, and why the Washington Post fact-checker gave Planned Parenthood's 3% statistic three Pinocchios, marking it as, quote, very misleading. Let's look at the numbers. According to their own annual report, Planned Parenthood commits over 300,000 abortions per year. Last year alone, they did 323,999 abortions, which averages to 887 abortions per day, 37 abortions per hour, one abortion every 97 seconds. Again, Planned Parenthood commits one abortion every 97 seconds.
So uh, welcome back to the show. Is there any way that it is possible that if they're doing one abortion every 97 seconds, that 93% of what they do is not abortion? I mean, there's a lot of lies floating around out there right now. There's a lot of what you hear on TV, which is just straight up lies. I don't mean slight lies or the truth that could be a lie because someone else is currently changing things. I mean, straight up, you know it's a lie before it comes out of your mouth, all the way lie. Your per- the period comes at the end of the sentence, and it's a total, complete lie, a fabrication, which is what that statistic is, that 3% of what they do is abortion. But you're probably thinking, well, how do they manage that number? Because they had to have used some kind of numerical uh, calculation to get to that 3%. Well, thank God for Lila Rose and live action. If you go to YouTube and type in live action, Lila Rose, her website is liveaction.org. You can watch the video that that clip was taken from and watch it for yourself. It's detailed. And there's, there's no imagery of abortion in it. So it's just strictly about what they're doing with the numbers about abortion. Here she is explaining how they disguise their abortion business. To get the 3% figure, Planned Parenthood divides abortions by the number of so-called services, which they define as a discrete clinical interaction. And they count all these services equally, regardless of the cost, time, or effort it takes to render that service. So an entire abortion procedure, which can cost from $390 to $1,500, is counted the same as a pregnancy test, which a girl could get at a pharmacy for $10. In this way, Planned Parenthood is able to count 9.4 million services. Divide 323,999 abortions by 9.4 million services, and they get 3%. It's easy to see why this math is completely ridiculous. Say a woman goes to Planned Parenthood to get an abortion. She gets her pregnancy test, the abortion procedure, an STI test, and some contraceptives. In one visit, she gets four services, one of which is the actual abortion. So Planned Parenthood would say that abortion was only 25% of what they did for that woman, who came into the clinic only for an abortion. Well, by this math, even if 100% of Planned Parenthood patients got an abortion, they would still say abortion is only 25% of their services. Such distorted calculations could be used to obscure the purpose of any business. It would be like the NFL saying that because they sold 5 million hot dogs in a season and there were only 256 games, football is only 0.005% of what they do. Or it'd be like a steakhouse saying, actually, steak is only a very small percentage of what we serve because we also serve salad, mashed potatoes, french fries, beer, wine, soda, water, butter, salt, pepper, ketchup, toothpicks, and breath mints. We'd say, yeah, right, you're a steakhouse. Just like Planned Parenthood is an abortion corporation. All right, so now we're going to listen to number four, where they talk about just a little bit more about this, and we just have a little bit more to go before we get to the $1.2 billion in federal dis- reimbursements. $1.2 billion a year. No wonder they have so much extra money to give to the Democratic Party in the form of political donations. An entity that has a funding source from the U.S. government spends some of their budget on donations to the Democrats and American taxpayers aren't outraged by that. Well, millions of us are outraged, but we're not getting anywhere because our elected officials aren't doing anything about it. So let's listen to number four. How much of what Planned Parenthood does is abortion? Well, let's divide the number of abortions they do in a year by the number of patients they see in a year. 
323,999 abortions for 2.5 million patients means that one in eight patients who walk into Planned Parenthood will undergo an abortion. Not one in 33, Elizabeth Warren, one in eight. It's easy to see where Planned Parenthood's priorities are. They commit 160 abortions for every one adoption referral. Though Planned Parenthood constantly talks about their breast exams and pap tests, they only do less than 1% of the nation's pap tests and 1.8% of the nation's breast exams, while they do 30.6%, a third, of the nation's abortions. But that's a public relations problem. So Planned Parenthood came up with a creative way to make their big business, abortion, look very small. So now you understand where the 3% number comes from. It's a fabrication. It's a lie. And it doesn't have anything to do with what they do. Now, here is where the rubber meets the road. Because what we always talk about, and I'm guilty of this as well, is the $558 million a year Planned Parenthood spends on federal reimbursements. Or, or I'm sorry, $558 million a year that Planned Parenthood receives from the American taxpayers. But that's not their primary funding source. It sounds like it is. They always make a big deal about it. Whenever we talk about cutting Planned Parenthood's taxpayer funding, that is the number that we're talking about. $558 million a year that comes from the federal government to Planned Parenthood. But that's not the money they care about the most. Yes, they want to keep that funding. The reason they want to keep that funding is because the minute you take that away, then people will say, oh, aren't we also giving you $1.2 billion in federal reimbursements? It's number seven. In light of recent undercover videos showing Planned Parenthood executives discussing the sale of donated fetal organs, conservative lawmakers are aiming to strip the organization of its taxpayer funding. So how much does Planned Parenthood receive in federal and state funding? Planned Parenthood Federation for America has 59 independent local affiliates that operate approximately 700 health clinics in the United States. According to Planned Parenthood's latest annual report, the organization's affiliates received over $528 million in government funding between 2013 and 2014. The majority of federal and state money comes from grants and reimbursements. That's 41% of the organization's combined total revenue. The remainder of Planned Parenthood's funding breaks down like this. 30% comes from private contributions, 23% from non-government health services, and 6% from other operating revenue. Meanwhile, in 2013, more than 50 congressmen called on the Government Accountability Office to conduct an independent report detailing how federal and state funding is allocated to Planned Parenthood and similar family planning organizations. The report found that during fiscal years 2010 through 2012, Planned Parenthood's affiliates received nearly $1.2 billion in federal and state reimbursements for services provided under the State Children's Health Insurance Program, Medicaid, and Medicare. As more allegations emerge, Planned Parenthood's federal funding could be on the line. So this video is from the Daily Signal, and it was made directly after um, the, the whole baby parts thing came, came about with the Center for Medical Progress. And so th there's a lot that's important about this, but the most important thing, I, I guess, at the top of the heap of important things is just that we're aware that it's more than the $558 million and that this is a travesty. And it's something that if, if we're not willing to hold our elected officials accountable on it, they will not be willing to take the votes that need to be taken. And, and it's not about political party. 
It's about the activity. The same way that American Family Association opposes Target's push to integrate restrooms so that girls experience even more sexual assaults and, uh, you know, peeping Tom incidents than they already do in Target stores. Check my website, StaceyOnTheRight.com. I have a catalog of the, all the ones that I've been alerted to recently. I, I do a check online or if a story shows up, I'll, I'll add it to the list. Um, and there may be some that are missing from there, but that I have, I have one of the most comprehensive lists online that you can find at StaceyOnTheRight.com, and it's on the homepage of assaults that have happened at Target. And the same way we oppose that, it's not about political party. It's about protecting women and girls from voyeurs and sexual predators. We should be willing to go out to the same degree or even further to protect unborn babies from this scourge. We did discuss a couple of days ago that Rand Paul was talking about 440 pastors a year are aborted. You know, these are kids who would grow up to be pastors. They're being aborted. Uh, geniuses. 1,600 geniuses a year aborted. We're talking about the future of our country. We had Obi on yesterday talking about the history being, literally, it cuts the history off. Uh, when we were at the marriage and family conference in Tupelo, Ryan Bomberger of the Radiance Foundation gave an outstanding keynote speech the first day about how his family came to be. Had his mom, who had been raped by his father, chosen to abort him, he would not have been alive, obviously, which means he never would have met his wife and they never would have had their two natural born children or adopted the two other children that comprise their family of six people. He is one of the examples of what can happen when we are faced with difficult situations and we go forward instead of yielding to the demonic influence that simply says you have to abort. Why do I call it demonic? I had someone message me on Facebook the other day and he said, you, you keep calling people who support abortion pro-abortion and that's wrong. I just refuse to give cover to that any longer. I refuse to make people feel good about supporting abortion, which is infanticide. I refuse. If you're, if you're supporting Planned Parenthood, you're supporting their entire agenda Go to my Twitter feed, Stacy on the right, and check out one of my tweets from just a couple of hours ago. I have an image up on my Twitter feed of an, it's a billboard that runs in Dallas, Texas and areas all over uh, the, the metro area. Now, just in case you're wondering, and, and you can verify this for yourself by calling, this one's on an Outfront billboard. Outfront is a billboard company in the United States. I know how much billboards cost because I've called here locally to find out. What they do is they'll set up a little machine that measures how many cars drive on a highway per day, and then they add that total up for a weekly total, and they'll leave it there for a few months to make sure that their totals are steady. They take the aggregate, they average everything, and they come up with a number of cars that pass on that highway in a given week. Then they charge their advertising rates based upon that. So in St. Louis, a billboard for one month can cost anywhere from ten to 12000 to as little as a thousand per month. So an average billboard inside the metro area on one of the main thoroughfares is usually around four grand a month. That's for St. Louis. Our market size is 22. We are number 22 city for population in the United States based on the metro area. 
Dallas is in the top 10 for population size. It's one of the largest cities in the country. So you know this ad was expensive. They're probably paying about 20 grand a month for this ad. And this is what it says. It says, black women take care of their families by taking care of themselves. Abortion is self-care. The afiacenter.org slash trust black women is the website. The hashtag is trust black women. And this ad has a picture of three lovely black women wearing white. One has on a polka dot top. The other two have on white. Uh, It's marketing genius. When people who are black wear white in advertising, it's meant to mainstream whatever they're selling. There's, they put this together well. They have even one of the women has a natural hairdo, a short natural haircut. Um, and the other two women have relaxed hair. They're all mainstream attractive women. They're not skinny. They're, they're just right in that marketing target to speak to the audience that they want to speak to. This billboard is not just this one. In the tweets back and forth, since I sent this tweet out, people are actually saying, oh, I saw this in my area of Dallas. So they're advertising this. They're spending literally probably a campaign like this where they'll have this billboard up for 90 days. They'll spend dollars $150,000, $250,000 on a campaign like this. In St. Louis, they did a campaign for another radio host where they ended up spending $300,000 to promote that radio host for a few, di- for a few months on all of the billboards in St. Louis. This is absolutely your tax dollars being used to make black women think having an abortion is like a day at the spa. Outrage, but not just blind, impotent anger. I'm asking you to be upset about this enough to talk to your legislators, to talk to the people who are supposed to be watching over our money. We'll be back with more tomorrow. Have a blessed evening, everybody. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast do not necessarily reflect those of Urban Family Talk, Urban Family Communications, or American Family Association.